Good morning, Christ Church. It's times like these I'm thankful for Eugene Peterson's translation of our holy text. It seems that Matthew had a heavy hit for us, and somehow it's more palatable from Eugene Peterson's version. But that focal verse that brings us to an end of our text for this morning, those who try to gain their own life will lose it, but those who lose their life for my sake will gain it. That's the crux for our message this morning. And as we come to the close of June, what I know of Black, His- Black Music Month, I'm mindful of... Uh, the name of a song by Fantasia, Lose to Win. Sermon title for this morning, Lose to Win. It's not original, so I have to give Fantasia a little bit of credit. There are others who have had similar lyrics, but she says in her song, sometimes you got to lose to win. I'm also thinking as we come to the close of June, Midway through the year, this is the month that brings me to the time in my life when I did a different kind of work. And what's at the forefront that comes to mind now is the time in this month for African-American HIV and AIDS testing being a focus. You see, my time before ministry focused a lot on the HIV and AIDS population. And I was reminded of this through a book that I had on my shelf. It had been given to me by a former mentee, now a colleague and sister in ministry. Never having had the time to read it, I grabbed it off the shelf the other day because I knew I had a long train ride to an appointment. I think if I'd stopped long enough, I might have put it back on the shelf. But I wanted something to read that I'd never read before, and I grabbed it, and so this book took me back to my life as a young social worker and the early days of my ministry. The mentee had placed a handwritten note in the book that she'd had the author sign for me, and I felt maybe it's time I opened this book. She had the author autograph a copy just for me. How special is that? Have you ever gotten a book you weren't sure why the giver gave it to you? So the note the mentee had in the book said, Reverend D. Lee, I heard this author in Savannah and thought of you. So I said, okay, maybe it's worth my time. She heard the author speak. I didn't know what to make of it, and the back and inside covers didn't reveal enough for me to know what I was about to read. The book, Cricket Road Straight, The Awakening of AIDS Activist Linda Jordan, was a story of the life of a woman I am certain I encountered one day. In fact, I think I might have even heard her speak at a national conference at some point while working in that field. The main character sounded so familiar. I could have sworn that she had been one of my clients. I served in my 
work prior to attending Union Theological Seminary, I, I was reminded very vividly about the days I worked in the Mecklenburg County Health Department in Charlotte, North Carolina, as a public health investigator, administering pre- and post-test counseling for the HIV-AIDS test. This was a time that I was also monitoring the trends in what was then known as STDs, sexually transmitted diseases, now STIs, sexually transmitted infection, and tracking infectious diseases. Yeah, it was a fun job. You had to ask. It, it was. It really was. The character's story took me back to my days, even after the health department, with Metrolina AIDS Project, when I served as a Ryan White-funded case manager. When I, in that position, served not only in Mecklenburg County, I served outside of the county. I served in a way that I didn't know when I was attending college I would end up having to serve. I was there serving the indigent population, those who could not afford to get any treatment for their status. A job that caused me to often travel the streets downtown Charlotte looking for my clients, some of them homeless men and women, while trying to help them find safety and proper medical care, helping them find shelter and even their families. While along my journey, yes, I served even as a director for a family transitional shelter. Yeah, a homeless shelter here in New York City, funded by the Department of Homeless Services. That's the DHS I knew, not Department of Homeland Services. You have to be careful with whom you speak when you use DHS. So while along my journey, I even ended up in a hospital setting, all the while still primarily serving the HIV and AIDS community. And I would continue as a social worker in the field, and the HIV and AIDS community being my primary population when I ended up here in New York in seminary. And so remembering my former days in the field at national conferences, a previous internship with the National Minority AIDS Council in Washington, D.C., all reminded me of how I had experienced so many who lived the story which Matthew's Gospel teaches us today. You see, the book about Linda Jordan, the story about Linda Shannon Jordan, is one filled with the traumas of poverty and low education, incarceration and abuse, chemical addiction and depression, a story that I knew well from my time serving with the HIV's community, and a story that reminded me that only the vicissitudes of life could show us its vanity and develop our innate love of death or of rebirth to a new life. You see, the gospel writer in Matthew tells a story of loss, death and non-death. It is a very complicated text which gives an undisputable picture of walking the life of faith. It captures an image of strife and discord. It turns parents against children. It seems even 
to present a picture of familial discord and disunity. However, I think the goal presented by Jesus is one that challenges us to think beyond the bonds of family ties. And anything that would bind us to a stationary and complacent life. Instead, if we chose to follow and become his disciple, we are tasked with the challenges of ultimate sacrifice. Much like Abraham in the Old Testament, when God told him to leave your kindred and acquaintance and go to the place that I will show you. I was always torn by that because who wants to just leave their family, leave their temple of familiar and the people that nurture them into life? But even to follow some of us, our personal goals for different reasons, educationally, professionally, and everything in between, some of us will take on that kind of loss. And loss, even non-death losses, matter. They really do matter. Loss is a part of living. Loss is a part of our journey, and we have to accept that. And so when I think about this text and what Jesus is trying to communicate, I believe that there is a reason that we are told even to put a different perspective on our familial bonds. Because what Jesus is trying to help us to understand is we have to make a choice. And I know, yes, I'm hypersensitive to death right now and, and loss. I'm hypersensitive not only because I just flew back from a funeral of a family member, a dear loved one whose funeral was yesterday in my hometown, I'm hypersensitive having just taught a course on loss, death, and trauma to doctor of ministry students. And one of the textbooks that we use, a primary text, the authors frame it this way. Loss always contains some ambiguity even when it's anticipated. Part of this ambiguity is being able to hold the opposing ideas of absence and presence in our minds at the same time, to live concurrently with joy and sorrow. We learn that we can live with sadness and grief as well as with joy and grief. Life and death each require the other, and without both, neither would be meaningful at all. That's how Hewitt and Kramer phrase it, and I believe that that is true because when we experience a loss, even when we choose to relocate for school or for that job, we leave behind a community. We leave behind our families. We leave behind our old routines. And sometimes it's a bit jarring and takes some time to get our footing. That's what loss does to us, causes us to reimagine ourselves in the world. Who am I now that my loved one is gone? What does this mean for the family? Who am I here in this big city? A city so nice they named it twice. Yes, New York, New York, big city of dreams. But everything in New York isn't always what it seems. 
You can't escape death. You can't escape loss. And here the text, I think ultimately Jesus is trying to push us to see is that discipleship requires some losses. Discipleship requires some decisions that have to be made by each and every individual. If we choose to follow him, he helps us to know that we have a cross that we have to take on. That we each are responsible for. That there's a transition that comes with accepting the call to serve. And even in this moment, I'm reminded of Dietrich Bonhoeffer and his writings, the son of a famous German psychiatrist. Not only did he study in Berlin, but journeyed, yes, to these United States of America, to this fine city, a city so nice they had to name it twice. It was here in New York City that he found a new message of hope and grace that led him to return to Germany for the purpose of fighting the Nazis and Hitler's defeat. This young Lutheran pastor took to attending worship and teaching Sunday school uptown in Harlem, the Abyssinian Baptist Church, where I had the opportunity to serve for 16 years. And I can see how the powerfully preached sermons of Adam Clayton Powell Sr. directly influenced his perspectives on the faith and discipleship. Bonhoeffer took Powell's messages on the matter of cheap grace and found meaning for his own life as a disciple of God through Christ. And Bonhoeffer decided he would write. And he offers this, in the fellowship of the crucified and glorified body of Christ, we participate in his suffering and glory. His cross is the burden which is laid on his body, the church. All its sufferings born beneath this cross are the sufferings of Christ himself. This suffering first takes the form of the baptismal death, and after that, the daily dying of Christians and the power of the baptism. But there is a far greater form of suffering than this, Bonhoeffer says, one which bears an ineffable promise. For while it is true that only the suffering of Christ himself can atone for sin, no greater glory could he have granted to his own. No higher privilege can the Christian enjoy than to suffer for Christ. That's Bonhoeffer's version of telling the old, old story of Jesus and his love, a love so great that would cause him to perform such a saving act for us. Bonhoeffer was on to something. Bonhoeffer said, blessed is he whom God deems worthy to suffer for the body of Christ. Such suffering is joy indeed, enabling the believer to boast that he bears the dying of Jesus Christ and the marks of Christ in his or her own body. The Christian may now serve so that Christ may be magnified in the body, whether by life or by death. The ultimate cost for our discipleship is our very lives. Yes, Christ Church, I'm comfortable today lifting up the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer because I believe in him we also saw a reverence for the Christian race. It was this race that the character in this book, Linda, came to know very well. Linda tested positive in 1989 for HIV. It had been her second test 
Of course, between the first and the second, she felt an overwhelming sense of relief. And then after the second test, when she had to realize that there had to be a change to her life, she began to take on the mantle of helping to save the lives of others around her. You see, Linda Jordan had been one at the time in which she was featured in a lot of posters for HIV and AIDS awareness for the African-American community. She was the first willing to have her picture posted as one who had contracted the virus through intravenous drug use. She did something that no one else at that time was willing to do. She was willing to step across that divide from silence and shame to putting herself out there and risking being vulnerable to all the world. But she found in her new life, in her second test, a second chance. Because you see, Linda realized that in order to win her life, she had to lose it. Her example is one that's primary for me because she took it on herself to become a part of a major speakers bureau, not only in, in this country, but internationally at conferences. Because in the time in which she was serving, people were still living with a lot of guilt and shame. And even Linda, in the book, talks about her own shame, her own guilt, not having given the attention she needed to have given to her four daughters, not having lived a life that had more potential, instead being a 30-year intravenous drug user, not having had a faith, not only in a higher power, but in herself. She didn't have the confidence. She didn't have the stability because she was offered a limited perspective because she too followed in the steps of her mother before her. Her race, she thought, she thought at some point her race would end in a way that would be life-changing for her daughters. And unfortunately, she saw one die as a result of the complications of AIDS, even her husband. Her story, I tell you, took me back. Took me back to helping not only give the test results to those who had tested for the virus, it took me back to serving the clients that I started out in North Carolina and went on to D.C. to serve. Helping people change and transform their lives that they too might understand that God has something bigger planned, something more abundant planned than the limited worldview they've been given. Linda's story, and reading this book, there were moments when the book annoyed me so, but I couldn't put it down. It annoyed me because it was, it was just that visceral response to so much pain and so much agony, that visceral response to the angst in her life and the disease that helped her live through years of addiction, abuse, molestation, neglect, abandonment in all forms. I know, it feels heavy today in this message. 
But Matthew's gospel today, this particular passage, while Eugene Peterson softens it, is a heavy message. Because what Matthew is telling us is in order to gain our lives, we have to be willing to lose it. We have to be willing to relinquish some things that have held us back and kept us from accepting the full charge that God has put before us. And in the story of Linda's life, I could see and remember the names of some of my my clients. Linda reminded me of some of the women I served in my last job before entering seminary, serving in the D.C. Department of Corrections as a vendor for services provided through a community-based organization, another aid service organization, ASOs as we call them, to men and women who were preparing for release from prison, who were living with HIV or AIDS. I remember so many of them vividly and their names. I remember their stories of pain. I remember the anguish. But coming through the gates to a free life, I remember several of them changing their course and finding out for the first time in life they had an opportunity to do something wonderful, something different. They had an opportunity to change and impact the lives of others, to do something that was good instead of something destructive. Instead of selling drugs, they can help people get off of drugs. Instead of deciding that their diagnosis could be a a death sentence, they decided they would choose life. This is where Linda's story took me back. Because there were moments on the prison yard of Lorton, Virginia. I had a 45-minute commute by car. And I would be singing when I walked into the medical unit. Whatever song that had been on my radio then on a Christian gospel station, And the reason I did that was because I had to gird up my soul, my loins, before I went into the unit every day that I went to help men and women find some hope and some assurance that life could indeed be different. And I thank God for Linda's story and having continued to read the book and not put it down because after all of the chapters, of course, it takes to the very end of the book, oh gosh, It drained me to find a measure of hope. And the last chapter was entitled Hope. When Linda stands and proclaims, AIDS saved my life, she told her audiences. People looked at her aghast. They couldn't believe that she would take that on. She said, God saved me before, and God's not going to leave me now. The author stated about Linda's life, silence turned into whispers each time Linda stood before a new group and announced that she was HIV positive. You see, this was the late 80s and into the 90s that she lived through her addiction. And early 2000s, before she really took on that mantle and found something positive in being HIV positive. That kind of honesty about her condition, the author wrote, was unheard of in the latter part of the 20th century. 
the cloud of shame that Linda felt most of her life had lifted. African Americans across the country were in denial, believing that their HIV status was a death sentence. You see, other communities had already learned what this community at that time was slow to learn. So the author says, telling her story became easy. She had gained more than she'd ever lost. At a time when it was desperately needed, her message hit the national scene as she traveled to AIDS conferences, was photographed for Life magazine, and continued delivering her message of hope despite her troubles. Yes, sometimes you have to lose to win. This was a life lesson that finally Linda Jordan had realized before she left this earth. She had to lose the way that she had chosen to live her life well into her adulthood with three young daughters still at home and the oldest, her eldest child, already addicted to chemicals. But Linda found joy because she found, of course, a higher power. One day in her fight after coming through treatment, Linda decided she would listen to the foster mother of her three daughters. And the mother had said to her when she showed up intoxicated one day, don't show up like that again. Don't come to my house if you're intoxicated. You cannot see your girls if you show up in this way again. But I'll tell you what the foster mother said. Come to church. You can see your daughters in church. Linda took on the challenge and after treatment showed up at church. Showed up at the church that her foster parents for her children were attending with her daughters in tow. She said, I knew they cared for my children. I could tell because they took the time to do their hair put them in pretty dresses and barrettes that matched. My daughters looked happy, a happiness that I couldn't provide them when I had them in my care. She sat in the back of the church. She heard the message being preached. She saw the people in the fellowship. She saw the joy they seemed to exhibit. She saw their smiles. And Linda decided, I want some of that happiness too. I want to clean up clean up my life, clean up my looks. I know that there is something bigger in this life for me. So thanks be to God, Linda was willing to die to her old self, the only self she had known, watching all those around her, family members, friends, even her mother, to find a new life because of her hope in God. It was a church and a message of hope, people, that loved on her and prayed with her and nurtured her back to wholeness. And not only the wholeness that she had once prayed for, but a new life. Because Linda Jordan was willing to lose her life to gain it. So she said that she continued on her message of helping others to see that, yes, at that time it had been a death sentence in the minds of some, but never for her. She said AIDS was a blessing for her. Having her HIV diagnosis helped her change her life. And I know that's hard for some of you to hear, but what Jesus, in this message that, God, that Matthew gives us today, is trying to help us to see is that there is a choice that we all have to make. We could choose to win, not only in this life, but also the next. 
Or we could choose by the world's standards. And the prince of this world would have us to believe that all of these other relationships, all of these other family dynamics would be worth forsaking the ultimate message of gaining a life that's better on this side and the next side. So even though the pain of the book and her life's journey reminded me of so many who experienced that pain, incarcerated and those who were out, those who lived with mental health issues and those who did not, those who just simply found themselves down in life for whatever reason, reminded me of so many of the jobs that I had before accepting the call to ministry, the ultimate way that I found that God had challenged me to help not only change my life, but the lives of so many others, was again to make a choice. And the book in that way refreshed my hope and encouraged my soul because I knew that in the words of Fantasia at that moment, sometimes you have to lose to win through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.